0: Welcome back to Bell's Library. I'm your host, Bell, researching some of the more obscure details behind current events. In the aftermath of Trump's disastrous Helsinki summit, there has been widespread outrage about a number of issues resulting from it. One of the most widely denounced of these was Vladimir Putin's offer to have members of Robert Mueller's team travel to Russia and question Russian nationals accused of interfering in the 2016 election. But in return, Putin wanted to question American nationals that he claimed were implicated in crimes against Russia. There was a massive outcry against this suggestion, but it's worth looking into the issue in more detail. Exactly who are these people, Putin wants to question, and why? We're going to head to the International Relations section of the library, Dewey Decimal number 327, and Modern Russian History, 947.086, traveling back to the 1990s. momentous events occurred late in 1991. The first, of course, was the theatrical release of Beauty and the Beast on November 22nd. Only slightly less notable was the fall of the Soviet Union, which was officially dissolved on December 26th, 1991. In communist Russia, the vast majority of the nation's assets were state-owned. After the dissolution of the Soviet Union, a massive privatization project began, first taking the form of a voucher privatization program between 1992 and 1994. According to Wikipedia, quote, the vouchers, each corresponding to a share in the national wealth, were distributed equally among the population, including minors. They could be exchanged for shares in the enterprises to be privatized. Because most people were not well informed about the nature of the program or were very poor, they were quick to sell their vouchers for money, unprepared or unwilling to invest. Most vouchers, and hence most shares, wound up being acquired by the management of the enterprises, end quote. This practice gave way to a loans-for-share scheme in 1995, when the Russian government faced high deficits and an urgent need for funds. This method of privatization, quote, became a form of selling or privatizing state assets at very low prices, end quote. Ultimately, much of these formerly government assets ended up in the hands of the nomenklatura, Communist Party appointees who held influential positions in Soviet government and industry, as the Soviet Union collapsed, many of them saw the opportunity for personal enrichment in the privatization of government resources. The nomenklatura eventually became the Russian oligarchs we hear so much about in the news today, and the wholesale theft of Russian resources by these oligarchs turned Russia into a kleptocracy. According to an article by Sumis Milne from The Guardian in 2001, capitalist restoration brought in its wake mass pauperization and unemployment. Wild extremes of inequality, rampant crime, virulent antisemitism, and ethnic violence, combined with legalized gangsterism on a heroic scale and precipitous looting of public assets. The political movement for reformation within the Soviet Union's Communist Party during the 1980s was known as perestroika. Following the disastrous privatization process, a new term was created, catastroika, a catastrophic change brought about by failed attempts at reform. The most famous Russian oligarch of all is, of course, Russian President Vladimir Putin. It's difficult to accurately assess his net worth, but estimates based on his property holdings and stakes in various corporations range from a minimum of about $40 billion to a high estimate of $200 billion. For comparison, Bill Gates is worth around $84 billion. As Rob Weil wrote for Time magazine in January 2017, quote, Putin enjoys 20 palaces, 4 yachts, 58 aircraft, and a collection of watches worth 400,000 pounds, according to a scandalous dossier drawn up by a former deputy prime minister in 2012. In a country where 20 million people can barely make ends meet, the luxurious life of the president is a brazen and cynical challenge to society from a high-handed potentate, Boris Nemstov wrote in the document, end quote. To maintain their obscene fortunes, Putin and other Russian oligarchs create and use secret slush funds, launder money, and commit tax fraud. This is where Bill Browder enters our story. Browder, an American who renounced his American citizenship and became a British citizen in 1998, co-founded Hermitage Capital Management in 1996 to try to capitalize on the Russian privatization program. He invested heavily in Russia, eventually becoming, quote, a prominent activist shareholder in the Russian gas giant Gazprom, the large oil company Sergit Neftegaz, R-A-O-U-E-S, Sparebank, Sidanko, Avizma, and Folsanka. This is from Wikipedia, citing a Harvard Business School case from 2002. According to an article written by Clifford J. Levy for the New York Times in July 2008, quote, Mr. Browder made a lot of money and a lot of enemies after arriving in Russia in 1996, garnering a reputation as a sharp-eyed analyst of Russian industry who could also be abrasive and headstrong. Mr. Browder concentrated his investments on the largest Russian companies, most of them in the energy sector and under some Kremlin control. Hermitage became expert at conducting forensic audits into their finances, uncovering all manner of wrongdoing, from insider trading to outright theft. He often leaked the information to the Russian international press. Browder discovered that billions of dollars in gas had been sold by Gazprom at deeply discounted prices to shady intermediaries, end quote. The Russian government assumed complete control over Gazprom in 2005, along with many other central energy assets that were being renationalized. The Kremlin finally retaliated against Browder for decrying widespread fraud and corruption. His visa was canceled, and over the next few years, his associates and lawyers and their relatives were victims of beatings, robberies, and other crimes. Hermitage was subject to raids, seizure of company holdings, and bogus lawsuits by the Russian government, and was accused of evading over $40 million in taxes. As Wikipedia explains, quote, The raids in June 2007 allegedly enabled corrupt law enforcement officers to steal the corporate registration documents of three Hermitage holding companies. They allegedly perpetrated a fraud, claiming and receiving a rebate of $230 million in taxes paid by those companies to the Russian state in 2006. In November 2008, one of Hermitage's auditors, Sergei Magnitsky, was arrested. He was charged with the very tax evasion that he was investigating. Magnitsky died on November 16, 2009, in prison after 11 months in pretrial detention, nearly the limit allowed under the law. A report linked to by the Wall Street Journal said he died of disease made worse by poor medical treatment, end quote. Michael Isakoff and David Korn tell the story this way in their recent book, Russian Roulette, quote, After Magnitsky filed a criminal complaint accusing Russian officials of fraud, he was arrested and charged with tax evasion. While in custody, he grew painfully ill, suffering from gallstones and pancreatitis. He made repeated requests for medical assistance that were denied. Hunched over in agonizing pain, he documented his mistreatment in 450 handwritten complaints. After his death, an independent investigation found his body was badly bruised, the result of multiple beatings by prison guards, end quote. When Bill Browder learned exactly what had happened to his lawyer, he was outraged, and he began to seek justice in the form of government sanctions on Russia. Browder and his allies lobbied the U.S. government to pass the Magnitsky Act, which named various Russian oligarchs and other individuals who were implicated in the massive human rights abuses that led to Sergei Magnitsky's death. The act imposed sanctions on these individuals, barring them from entering or doing business in the United States and freezing their assets. As a result, many Russian oligarchs, including Putin personally, have been severely hurt financially, and Putin was and still is furious about it. Browder was tried by a Russian court and convicted in absentia, and sentenced to nine years in prison. Russia has attempted many times to have him arrested by Interpol. Browder was actually arrested on an Interpol arrest warrant in Madrid on May 30th of this year, but he was released by Spanish police after Interpol rejected the case as purely political. Putin continues to try to target Browder and his latest ploy was revealed after his summit with Trump in Helsinki last week. On July 13th, Robert Mueller's investigation indicted 12 Russian nationals connected with the Russian government on charges related to hacking and interference in the 2016 election. Prior to the summit, many U.S. government officials, particularly Democratic members of Congress, demanded that Trump cancel the summit in light of this development or, if he would not, then to seek the extradition of the 12 indicted Russians. During the press conference following the private meeting, Trump said Putin had a, quote, interesting idea and an incredible offer. Putin explained that he would be willing to have members of Mueller's team come to Russia to question the Russians named in the indictment, but in return, Putin wanted Russian law enforcement to question Americans who Putin claimed were implicated in crimes against Russia. These Americans were, according to Putin, working with Bill Browder. Although the accusations are Putin's, they sound tailor-made to appeal to Trump. The, forgive me, trumped-up charges expand on previous accusations that Browder and his associates committed tax fraud, and now accuses them of laundering that money in order to deliver $400 million to Hillary Clinton's campaign. This is pure Trumpian projection, accusing his opponents of the very crimes he himself is guilty of. As part of this accusation, Putin claims that Browder was aided by Ambassador Michael McFall, who he says helped Browder alter documents in Russia. However, McFall wasn't even in Russia at the time Putin claims this happened. I'm unable to find any evidence that McFall and Browder ever worked together in any way. In fact, at the time Browder was lobbying for the Magnitsky Act, McFaul advised against it, out of concern that it could damage the Obama administration's attempt at a Russian reset. Later, after the Magnitsky Act was passed, McFaul would go on to support it. McFaul does have a long history of speaking out against human rights abuses, and he and others in the State Department eventually had to acknowledge that the Russian reset had failed for a wide variety of reasons. It may be that tying McFaul to Browder was just a way for Putin to lump together multiple people he does not like in an effort to get revenge. Michael McFaul was appointed ambassador to Russia by the Obama administration in early 2012, when Dmitry Medvedev was president. Putin still held a good deal of power in Russia, however, and he again took the office of president in May 2012. Relations with the U.S. subsequently soured, and U.S. embassy officials, including McFall, were repeatedly harassed. McFall in particular was a popular target, given his habit of meeting with human rights activists and opposition leaders in Russia. He was outspoken and opinionated, and Putin saw him as a threat. As a result, McFall and his family were singled out for especially intense harassment. According to the book Russian Roulette, McFall, quote, received death threats. His children were followed on their way to school and soccer practice, infuriating the new ambassador, end quote. He was also followed to the home of a human rights activist and greeted by an unruly mob and television cameras, demanding to know why he was there. McFall reacted by losing his temper, which was then shown on Russian TV. Not long after this incident, quote, McFall was attending a reception at the Kremlin, and a Russian friend took him aside and cautioned him to lay low because you are really on thin ice. What do you mean, McFall asked? Putin, he was told, considered him a rabble rouser, and he should be very careful. Another time, at a party, McFall was ominously warned by a Russian friend that Putin viewed him, Putin viewed him as a CIA spy who had been dispatched to instigate a revolution against him. End quote. It's clear that Putin's paranoia led him to believe McFall was a threat to his regime, but McFall wasn't the only American Putin wanted Russian law enforcement to question, according to Medusa a Russian news aggregator based in Latvia, quote, the Russian attorney general's office has named several American state officials and intelligence officers wanted for questioning in the criminal case against Hermitage Capital founder Bill Browder. The list of names includes former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall, who was denied a Russian visa in June 2014 and subsequently banned from entering the country for his supposed active participation in the destruction of the bilateral relationship and relentless lobbying in favor of a campaign to pressure Russia, foreign ministry officials told Reuters at the time, end quote. The article also gives several other names from the list, none of which are as well known as McFaul or Browder. It's worth taking a look to see what we can learn about these individuals, however. Why is Putin targeting them? The first name given is Todd Hyman. According to an article by Ken Delanian for NBC News from July 2017, quote, In 2013, the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office sued a Russian company, Previzon, accusing it of laundering some of the proceeds of the fraud Magnitsky allegedly uncovered. The complaint incorporated Browder's account about what happened to Magnitsky. The chief American investigator, Todd Hyman of the Department of Homeland Security, testified in a deposition that much of the evidence in the government's complaint came from Browder and his associates, end quote. The Medusa article also lists, quote, Svetlana Engert, who supposedly stole criminal case materials from Russia, Alexander Schwarzman, who supposedly oversaw Browder's stay in the U.S., and Jim Rote, a supposed CIA agent acting as Browder's, quote, financial manager. Next is Robert Otto, who, according to the Russian attorney general, supposedly served as deputy director of a U.S. intelligence agency until 2017. This appears to refer to Lieutenant Robert P. Otto, whose bio on the Air Force website reads, Lieutenant General Robert P. Otto is the deputy chief of staff for Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance, headquarters U.S. Air Force, Washington, D.C. He is responsible to the Secretary and Chief of Staff of the Air Force for policy formulation, planning, evaluation, oversight, and leadership of Air Force intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capabilities. As the Air Force's senior intelligence officer, he is directly responsible to the Director of National Intelligence and the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. Otto appears to have retired in December of 2016. Jonathan Weiner was the senior official at the State Department, responsible for combating transnational organized crime during the 1990s. After leaving the State Department and developing a legal and consulting practice that often involved Russian matters, he met and became friends with Christopher Steele. Steele would often pass along useful information to Weiner that he discovered in the course of his own work. Weiner would occasionally share relevant information with the State Department. In February of this year, Weiner wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post entitled, Devin Nunes is Investigating Me. Here's the truth. In the column, he writes, quote, In September 2016, Steele and I met in Washington and discussed the information now known as the dossier. Steele's sources suggested that the Kremlin not only had been behind the hacking of the Democratic National Committee and the Hillary Clinton campaign, but also had compromised Trump and developed ties with his associates and campaign." I was allowed to review, but not to keep, a copy of these reports to enable me to alert the State Department. I prepared a two-page summary and shared it with Newland, who indicated that, like me, she felt that the Secretary of State, John Kerry, needed to be made aware of this material. End quote. David Kramer was the United States Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor from 2008 to 2009. He is currently the Senior Director for Human Rights and Human Freedoms at the McCain Institute. According to a February 22nd article by Julia Manchester writing for The Hill, Kramer visited London in November 2016, quote, during which he met with the author of the dossier, former British intelligence officer Christopher Steele. According to court filings, he met with Steele at McCain's request to view the pre-election memoranda on a confidential basis. Kramer then traveled back to the U.S. and gave copies of the memos to McCain, who in turn handed the documents over to the FBI, end quote. The last name on the Russian Attorney General's list is Kyle Parker, currently Chief of Staff of the U.S. Helsinki Commission and formerly a congressional staffer who played an important role in the writing of the Magnitsky Act. We can see a clear pattern emerging, that while Russia claims that the individuals on the list are required to testify regarding their possible complicity in Bill Browder's supposed crimes, many of them are closely related to the Magnitsky Act or the Steele dossier. The former is a sticking point for Putin and the latter for Trump. None of these Americans are going to be handed over to Russia, of course. While Trump was reportedly considering Putin's offer, after a national outcry, he was forced to walk back his support and declare that he, quote, disagreed with it, after all. The U.S. Senate actually voted unanimously, 98 to 0, against the turning over of any American citizens to Russia for questioning. If the subject should be raised again, it is clear that there will be enormous backlash, Still, it's very much worth looking at what was proposed in order to figure out why Putin wanted these individuals and what he hoped to gain. We must also not forget what typically happens to Russian dissidents, critics of Putin, and anyone he sees as a threat to his power. As long as we are aware of what's happening, we can defend our own country by fighting against creeping authoritarianism and Russian influence. Thank you for tuning in to Bell's Library. I'll see you next time as we delve further into the stories behind current events and pop culture.